This is Banished. I'm Amna Khaled. In February 2020, a couple of months after COVID-19 was just beginning to cast its net across the globe, The Lancet, a leading British medical journal, published a statement by more than two dozen scientists. It read, in part, We stand together to strongly condemn conspiracy theories suggesting that COVID-19 does not have a natural origin. This was a clear endorsement of the idea that the virus had jumped organically from bats to another species before infecting humans, most likely at a food market in Wuhan. The statement effectively halted scientific inquiry into even the possibility of a so-called lab leak. Trump's xenophobic rhetoric, along with Steve Bannon's claim that China had developed the virus as a bioweapon, certainly played a part in tainting the lab leak hypothesis. Most scientists were eager to condemn it at the outset as a conspiracy theory, not least to signal their distance from Trump's politics. Nevertheless, a handful of researchers maintained early on that the lab leak hypothesis was plausible and soon found themselves ostracized by their colleagues. Just last year, former Centers of Disease Control director Robert Redfield shared that he received death threats after he said on CNN that he thought COVID-19 originated in a lab. Our guest today is Alina Chan, a molecular biologist who in 2020 was a postdoctoral fellow at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard University. She was among those who pushed to at least consider a lab leak. Chan is not strictly speaking a virologist, someone who studies infectious viruses. Rather, she genetically engineers non-infectious viruses that can deliver gene therapy to people. Back then, Chan released what's called a preprint, a paper that hasn't gone through peer review yet, in which she suggested that the lab hypothesis should remain on the table. And that is when her troubles began. I started my conversation with her by asking her to sketch out in her own words what the various theories are for the origins of the virus. So even from the beginning, there were two branches of hypothesis for how this virus started. And the first one is the default hypothesis, according to most virologists, is that it spilled over from nature. So either a person got too close to a bat somewhere in a rural area and came to Wuhan, bringing that virus with them, or the virus could jump from animal to human at any of various animal to human interfaces. So these are farms, markets, pet shops, that kind of thing. So those are the natural origin hypothesis. But because of the location of the outbreak, which is Wuhan, China in central China, and there's this very famous virology institute there that specifically hunts for SARS-like viruses across China and Southeast Asia and brings them up to central China in Wuhan. That's why there's this second branch of hypotheses that are also plausible. So these are the lab or research-related hypotheses. And this can occur through multiple ways as well. So one It could be that the scientists are out there collecting samples from animals, from bats, from markets, from humans. Even they were collecting samples from sick people in South China and bring it all up to central China. In that case, they might have accidentally been infected, like a natural spillover, and brought the virus up. So that is research related. Two more, uh, they are growing the viruses in the lab. So they take the samples up to the lab and they're working with them and they accidentally get infected. And the most extreme version of a lab-related spillover is where they have genetically tinkered with the virus. So either they made it enhanced or they put in novel features that made the virus more pandemic-like. In that case, that could have also started the pandemic accidentally. I remember when the virus broke out and 
predominantly because of the association of the lab theory with what Trump was saying. People were very quick to discredit that as a conspiracy theory. And what's interesting to me is that that kind of stuff happens in public discourse, but it came to be the dominant form of approaching the question even in and among scientists. And you were one of probably a lone voice who was still advocating for being open to the question that this might have originated in a lab. So tell me a little bit, you know, what was it that led you to question this? And where did you start questioning it before we even get to the response? I was probably excessively naive at that time in early 2020. So I knew about the Trump thing. But as a scientist, my principle is not to let politics influence my science. That's kind of crazy to see politics make scientists afraid of saying things which are scientifically true or plausible. So that was always my stance. So I insisted on keeping one line in a preprint that I put on the internet in early 2020 saying that we have to consider both natural and lab origin hypothesis, no matter how likely or unlikely. And unfortunately, that got me into a huge deal of trouble. The fact that I was from outside of virology made me deeply unaware of the forces in that field that were extremely resistant to the idea of a lab leak. So I had seen a very prominent article called Proximal Origin that was published in the journal Nature Medicine. And the authors there were prominent virologists and uh, evolution biologists. And they had said that their stance was that they didn't believe any lab origin hypothesis was plausible. But for me, when I read that, I didn't know any of these people. They weren't like leaders in my field or anything. So I just thought, oh, they must be wrong. They must be mistaken because clearly all the things they've said in here do not rule out a lab origin. So I thought that there was open discussion. I thought there was room for discussion. It was only after my preprint went out and the backlash came, not only from the media, but the virology community, that I realized that I'd really waded into some uh, really, I guess, hostile territory. Tell me a little bit about the reaction you got. I can imagine the reaction by the public. Tell me a little bit about the reaction from virologists and scientists in other fields, because this was the hot topic and still is in many ways. And it's vital mm -hmm. for us to understand the origins to get a sense of how to deal with future pandemics. So how did people react? Yeah, I was extremely unaware of the politics that were happening in the field of virology in, in that scientific community that specializes in virus hunting and virology. So one of the strongest pushback I got was actually from the president of the EcoHealth Alliance, Peter Dashak, and this is a New York-based organization. It had received hundreds of millions of dollars over the past decade before the pandemic from multiple U.S. sources, including the National Institutes of Health. And a lot of that money went to China, went to that Wuhan lab. I had no idea about this, but when my preprint went out, he lashed at it saying that this preprint is riding on like conspiracy to gain impact or something like that. And over the next two years, as more and more information leaked about their deep ties to that Wuhan Institute and the type of research, the type of risky SARS-like virus research that was happening in there, I, I didn't give them any more benefit of the doubt that I was just like, they clearly are conflicted. This is a huge conflict of interest for them that if anyone said, manages to find out that this virus came from work that US dollars they channeled to China paid for, it's terrible. It would end their career, their reputations, the organization. So my view is very informed compared to what it was in early 2020. 
So let me ask you then that this was your preprint. Did it actually come out as a paper? Did it get peer-reviewed and published? No. So we submitted it to a few journals. And again, at the time, I was extremely naive. <laughs> so I sent it to journals and every editor said, we're not interested. We don't want to publish this without even sending it for peer review. So there was no place that would send us out for peer review, even though the data are there for anyone to reproduce. And actually, the claim of our paper that the virus, the pandemic virus, was well adapted for humans at the time of detection in Wuhan in December 2019, that opinion and that hypothesis has been widely supported by many different independent groups of scientists, including the proximal origin authors. So the group that said that they don't believe any lab hypothesis plausible, actually their whole paper kept talking about how optimized this virus was for human infection, even down to its smallest parts. They're like, this is so good at infecting people. So I think the only thing that was controversial about our preprint was that single line that said, we have to think about both natural and lab origin hypothesis. So tell me, how did the EcoHealth Alliance people get your preprint? I'm just trying to get a sense of how that circulated, given that it didn't go for peer review and no journal published it. So when I put that preprint online, I received advice from friends that to get more views, more readers of the preprint, I should use Twitter. So at the time, I already had a Twitter account, but I wasn't really using it. I just used it to browse other people's like tweets. I tell you, the root of all problems is Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then I asked my colleagues, what should I do on Twitter to help the preprint see the light of day? And they said, you should make a tutorial. And I had to Google what that was. And it's basically a, a thread that explains everything in your preprint for a lay viewer. So I did that. And that caught the eye of some journalists. But unfortunately, the first batch of journalists who took notice of the preprint were tabloid news. Of course, the whole issue got politicized, even though the preprint was not political and it used the mildest, most like cautious language possible throughout the preprint. It still got sucked up into this fight with Trump and whether or not it's a conspiracy theory. Right. You talked about the NIH connection with EcoHealth Alliance. But what was the kind of general nature of the hostility that you were facing on Twitter? So I think there were quite a few people at the time who were condemning the preprint, who were saying this is like conspiracy theories, this is anti-scientific and stuff. And then when I would go and ask them, what exactly do you think is unscientific about that? Immediately, they either couldn't think of anything or the things that they pointed out were actually misunderstandings from their part. Is that actually the other scientific publications had shown that we were right. I can only surmise that they just didn't like it because of that single line that said that a lab origin is possible because they couldn't find anything scientifically wrong with the paper. But it's changed a lot over the last two years because since the preprint, I've actually written a popular book, a nonfiction book, and it's called Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. And it was published last November. So since then, actually, the quality of harassment has changed quite a bit from the scientific community, which is that now they say that I'm trying to profiteer off a book. Like every day, there's lots and lots of tweets and messages like calling me a grifter and that kind of thing. Yet they cannot find anything wrong in the book. There's no error in the book, as far as I can tell, like no misinformation. Mm -hmm. So as a postdoc, was it not scary for you to wade into this? I appreciate that you said you, you felt like you were very naive at that point. But once you got into it, did you think, oh, my God, this is too much and I can't handle this. I'm going to step back and this is going to be detrimental for my career. And what have the professional implications been for you personally? I think there are a lot of things that I can't talk about. 
But I would say that I have had the most supportive mentor and employer that I could ask for during this time. I would say that I've been at some other institutes where they would not have hesitated to fire me. Even from day one of the preprint going into tabloids, I might have been cut off already. But because I was at a good institute in a good lab, my advisor has been so understanding. And actually, he he knows how important this issue is too. So even though it's taken a lot from me <laughs> mentally and also time and energy-wise, he knows that this is extremely important. And that's my scientific mantra as well, is why do it unless it's important? So career is important to me, but it rarely features in my mind above what I think has to be done, like the right thing to do. Like that always comes first and then the career comes second. So what if you have a great career at the end of the day, if you're never doing anything right, if you never take the risk to do something that no one else wants to do? Has your stance limited your professional opportunities going forward? Are there people in your field and in associated fields who are now blocking what you have access to? It's quite difficult to know because a lot of science is anonymized. A lot of peer review, grant review is anonymized. So it's not something where I can point out specifically when harm or retaliation has occurred. I'd say that for manuscripts on the origin of COVID-19 that I've submitted, I've seen some pretty bad behavior. One peer reviewer told the editor that I was a conspiracy theorist, even though the manuscript had nothing about the lab. When I saw that, I was like, okay, yeah, so there are clearly people who know about me and what I've said in the preprint and on Twitter, and they're out to stop me from publishing. That is definitely happening. I have not tried to leave my current lab, so I wouldn't know if there are people who won't let me get a job elsewhere. But I'd say that I have also been encouraged by a lot of virologists, actually, and other experts writing to me privately to say to keep up the good work because they think I'm on the right track. So tell me a little bit about, you say you're on the right track, tell me a little bit about what the state of affairs is right now. I know that early this year, people were beginning to entertain that there is a possibility that it leaked from a lab and that we do not have conclusive evidence that this was a natural transfer. Where are we at now in terms of what we know about the origins of the virus? Generally speaking, what we know about the possible origins of this virus today is more or less the same as what we knew in early 2020. A lot more details have come out to light, but the premise is still the same. And the situation is still the same. That Till today, there's no smoking gun. There's no direct evidence that can rule out or, or determine which hypothesis is the most likely one. Because the truth is, is that we simply do not know so much. We don't even know when the outbreak really began in Wuhan city. We don't know how the market cluster started. What we do know is that one of the early clusters of COVID-19 was at this seafood market, which also sold some number of wild mammals that could have possibly carried the virus into that market. But the problem is because the Chinese investigators at that time had assumed that was what happened, they specifically kept looking for cases with a link to that market. In fact, in the early month of looking for cases, even retrospective cases, they were like, it has to have a link to the market, otherwise it's not COVID-19. Because of that mistake, we now don't know any of the other early cases that happened in 2019. So it's very hard for us to know when it started and how it started. On the other hand, you look at this lab that's in Wuhan and more and more evidence has come out showing that they were just collecting tens of thousands of samples from eight countries. So not just China, 
but seven Southeast Asian countries. Some of these regions carried SARS-2-like viruses, like very close matches, but not the direct precursor, not the direct parent of SARS-2, but very close matches or very close cousins. They were taking all of these up into the lab. They were doing a whole range of fairly risky experiments, in my opinion, where they were putting in novel genetic features, switching parts in and out, testing this across a whole boutique range of cell lines and animal models that could have plausibly led to the creation or enhancement of SARS-CoV-2. So with these two options on the table, we still don't know which one is the most likely. Everyone has their own hunch on which one is the right one in their mind, but no one can produce evidence, direct evidence, saying that this must be the most likely one. Yeah, it's interesting. I was reading about the study by Christian Anderson. The kind of turn that Anderson has done, it's almost a 180, initially saying there was a possibility of a lab leak, but more recent paper completely discredits that. But there are flaws, from what I understand, in the method of that study. Can you tell me a little bit about where those flaws are? So one thing to know about Christian Anderson and some of his colleagues is that they were part of this very secretive group in early 2020, like January, February 2020, who met up privately. And this included Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Francis Collins, like the heads of the NIAID and the NIH here in the US, as well as the Wellcome Trust Director and the UK equivalent of the scientific advisor there. They privately worried intensely about a genetically engineered origin of this virus. Actually, many of them thought it was more likely it came from a lab. But then within days, they started telling their colleagues outside of that group that there's no way this was genetically engineered. And within that month of February 2020, they put out papers and they signed letters saying that it was a conspiracy theory. It was not plausible that this had come from a lab. So there was this complete U-turn or change between their private and public stance. And this only came to light last summer because those emails that were exchanged between them were released through the Freedom of Information Act. Many individuals sued for those emails and finally got them in 2021, more than a year after those conversations. So fast forward to this February, two years after they had those private phone calls, they released preprints, two preprints saying that they had this positive evidence. So this jargon is actually from the legal system. This positive means that it's decided, it settles the issue once and for all. They claim that they had this positive evidence that the pandemic virus came from that market in Wuhan city. And the two legs that their argument stands on is one, if you look at all the early identified cases, they seem to cluster around that market. But the problem with that argument is that they failed to understand that the Chinese investigators at the time, and this is extremely well documented, specifically included in the case definition, a link to the market or a link to hospitals near the market and the neighborhood of the market. So you may ask now, why did the Chinese investigators do that? It's because they thought it was a repeat of SARS-1. And with SARS-1, when the animal virus jumps into humans, all the early cases tend to be people of directly handled animals. You don't expect this to be a pandemic virus immediately. To clarify when mm-hmm. the Chinese government was documenting early cases, they only counted COVID cases that they could find in the proximity of the market. Yes. Because they assumed that it must be connected to the market. So presumably there are many COVID cases that could have happened in other parts of China that had no link to the market, but those were never documented. Yes, and actually one of the earliest cases that had no links to the market was actually located on the opposite of town, 
was only acknowledged, diagnosed as a COVID case because he was a nephew of one of the doctors at the hospital near the market. And he was transferred to that hospital near the market. And that's the only reason that he was recognized as a COVID case. So if he wasn't a nephew, if he wasn't related to one of the doctors at that hospital, he would have gone completely undiagnosed. This shows you that a lot of early cases were not recognized unless they were near the market. And then you said there was another problem with the study. Yes. So the second argument was that when you look at the surface samples at the market, so these are not actually from animals. They're not actually from even products. These are from walls, floors, door handles, like sewage. If you look at them, the store that had the most surface samples positive for the virus, like five samples positive, was a wildlife store. A store that was known to sell like raccoon dogs and other animals that could have potentially brought a SARS-like virus into the market. So they're like, what are the odds that the store that had the most positive samples also sold wildlife? So they say that is their smoking gun or the thing that they used to close the case. But the problem is, again, that the Chinese investigators had gone to the market specifically sampling the stores that had sold wildlife and had early cases. So they likely took a disproportionate number of samples from wildlife stores. And you could see what they were sampling too. They were sampling like gloves, they were sampling cages, they were sampling sewage and everything. And actually, the places where the surface samples had the most virus in them were from places where they knew there were sick people. And these did not sell any wildlife at all. So the problem is that these authors of these preprints don't understand the biases with which the data was collected. So they look at the bias and they think the bias is reality. So they think that because most of the samples are near the market and a store that's so wildlife and because most of the patients look like they're clustering around the market, therefore the virus must have come from the market and from that store. But they didn't understand that the Chinese investigators had specifically went overboard sampling from those areas. So just to be clear, you are open to the possibility that this was a natural transfer. You're not yes. arguing for the lab theory definitively. Yes, but they've been smeared publicly as a lab leak proponent. But the only reason why I'm a lab leak proponent is because there were so many virologists shutting it down completely. <laughs> Even someone just saying, hey, you can't just throw it off the table yet, becomes a lab leak proponent. Again, this situation of how the scientific community or the majority of it reacted to you even after these emails became public goes to show that scientific knowledge is political and always has been political. It doesn't have to be political in the sense of Democrat versus Republican, though we see that happening now. But the scientists themselves, the collection of data, often has bias built into it. One could argue that there is no way to be completely objective about things. But we do our best to get as close to being objective. So I don't know. Would you agree? <laughs> yes, I agree. And I especially agree on the point that sometimes people think of politics in a very American-centric way. Yeah. And I grew up outside of America, so I grew up in Singapore. If you have exposure to other cultures, you realize that there's so much difference culturally, politically, even from a single individual's point of view, that not every decision has the same biases, especially across different countries. Speaking of different countries, has there been any backlash from China? Uh, yes. I think this was in early 2021 that the Chinese state media went after me and that brought a lot of harassment on social media to me from Chinese-speaking users. And I'm, I'm definitely intimidated, right? Because this is a stance that China does not like. Even though China doesn't like the natural origin 
hypothesis either. They don't like to be pegged as the country where this pandemic came from, but they especially do not like the lab-based hypothesis. Yeah. You say what this has done to you personally. Obviously, it clearly has taken a toll. But can you reflect a little bit on that? Yeah, I'd say that there have been a lot of nights when I couldn't sleep. And there's, of course, fear. You'd have to be a completely obtuse person not to fear the consequences of asking such a dangerous question. But at the end of it all, you can lose a lot of sleep. You can be freaking out, you know, worrying about being hacked or killed or that kind of thing. And not just by Chinese government, but by people who attack you on Twitter. But at the end of it all, you you look at all this and you're like, what am I doing this for, right? If I stop now, will other scientists come and help raise the banner? Will other scientists come and say that we can't just sweep the lab origin under the rug here? And every time I, I go through this in my mind and think that there are too few people doing this, the decision is already made for me that I have to keep doing it <laughs> until someone actually steps up and has a formal investigation, a bipartisan investigation, until that carries through properly. It's very difficult for me to, to just run away afraid. It's not easy for people to maintain their compass of inquiry as stringently as you have managed to do in the face of such opposition. Alina, what would you say to people who say that now you were too invested having written this book in this hypothesis that it could have come from a lab and that your reading of the data and the evidence is also tainted by that? I'd say that everyone is biased. It depends how you track your bias. The first thing I'll point out is that the book refuses to come to a conclusion on which hypothesis is more likely. And actually, that has been widely criticized by people who read the book. They're like, these authors refuse to make up their minds and tell us which one was the truth. That's because there's no direct evidence. And therefore, the scientific approach is we cannot tell you which one is the most likely hypothesis. We let the readers consider the huge body of circumstantial evidence on both sides, and they can come to their own conclusion. That is why I encourage more exchange between both sides, between people who have biases for natural origin and for lab origin. The problem is when people shut each other out, when they do gatekeeping in the peer review system, when they slander each other online or harass each other privately. The problem is when they refuse to talk to each other publicly. When that happens, there's no exchange. And so each biased group gets more and more siloed and more and more insistent that they are the right ones. And the other group is the evil people with the evil agenda. So I wish that there was more middle ground for people to come and and counter each other's biases. Yeah, it's interesting to see how this kind of gatekeeping, professional gatekeeping, can actually be weaponized to silence viewpoints that are heterodox. And this is not new at all. It's not specific to COVID-19. Of course, but it's thrown into sharp relief in this case. Yes. And people can see it happening. It happens all the time. Having said that, like you said, there are many problems with peer review. I just, for our listeners, also want to say, but... Peer review is still one of the best ways we have of vetting research. One of the problems I find now is that, you know, you can Google something and you can find anything. Much of it is not peer reviewed. But people use that as a way of claiming that there is evidence. It's troubling to me that people will Google things and then just say, well, here's a study that says this. But the veracity of that study is not necessarily something that people are aware of. Yeah, I was particularly disturbed by these preprints that came out from the Christian Anderson group because they, without peer review, claimed that they had this positive evidence, like direct evidence of a 
natural origin and they were immediately featured across dozens of top news media. They were featured by the New York Times as breaking news at the same time as the Ukraine invasion was occurring. And I was like, is this normal? <laughs> is, it, is it normal for a preprint to be breaking news despite having not been wetted properly on the New York Times front page? It's really tragic how this has unfolded, but I'm really thrilled that you're pursuing this and you're talking about it because these kinds of biases in our inquiry are really important to talk about and discuss. So thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. I I am actually quite optimistic on this topic and there's a lot that I cannot write in a book or tell people on podcasts, but there's actually a lot going on behind the scenes and I'm quite optimistic that we will know the origin of this virus, the most likely origin of this virus within even maybe the two to five years, the next two to five years, we've seen from previous historical precedents that sometimes it can take decades, but there are definitely people who know what happened and they're just waiting for a safe and the right time to bring the evidence out. That's why I've been telling other scientists as well, don't rush to conclusions. Don't don't say that the science says this. And then like 10 years later, a whistleblower comes out and tells you the truth. And then you give all of the scientists a bad name together. Alina Chan is a molecular biologist specializing in gene therapy and cell engineering at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. If you enjoyed what you heard today and would like more discussions about cancel culture, censorship, and freedom of thought, please consider becoming a member at banished.substack.com. You'll get access to bonus segments, written columns, and special episodes. More importantly, you'll be supporting all the work we do here at Booksmart Studios. Don't forget to rate and share Banished on whichever platform you listen and leave a comment so we know what you think. Our success here at Booksmart depends as much on you as on us. Banished is produced by Matthew Schwartz and Mike Volo, and I, as always, am Amna Khaled. Toodaloo! Toodaloo!